0: Now, here you need to understand, even an organization like Hamas, a suicide organization, can be negotiated with if you use the right terms. Now, I'm an honor graduate of the Don Vito Corleone School of Negotiating. Uh, And basically, you can threaten them. Now, you might think to yourself, how do you threaten leaders of a suicide organization? And the answer is very simple. Think about this for a moment. You don't rise up through the ranks to leadership in a suicide organization, right? Right? Right, you don't start at the bottom, successfully commit suicide a few times and get promoted. It doesn't work that way. Right, there's, there's a line. There are those who get sent to Allah and there are those who send them to Allah. All right. Please note, Os- Osama bin Laden was not flying an airplane on 9-11. Okay? There was no bin Laden's last stand in Tora Bora. He had to be tracked down in his hideout in Pakistan with his bodyguards, his wives, and his pornography.
1: Welcome to the Destined to Win podcast with Pastor Tim Masters. Pastor Tim is the Senior Pastor of Victorious Life Christian Center in Flagstaff, Arizona, welcoming a guest speaker for this message. I'm Joe Hardy, inviting you to join us for worship services Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. For more information on the ministries of Victorious Life Christian Center or to make a donation, Visit us online at VLCCAZ.org. That's VLCCAZ.org. Now, with today's message, here's a word from our guest.
2: Greetings. I, you know, I had my back to you all a moment ago. So how many of you were here when, when I was here uh, last month, There were a couple of months ago? So about half of you. Okay, great. Um, see <clears throat> so if I. Well, this is not going to be an infomercial for Christians United for Israel. We are going to just give you an overview so that you can kind of kick the tires on the organization and and see if it is a resource that you want to uh, have at your disposal, a tool in your toolbox, if you will, as you seek to tangibly stand with Israel. So we will give you a little bit of a of a background on that. But I just I have to say. The last time that I was here, which was the first week in December, uh, the whole state of Arizona for Christian United for Israel barely had a pulse. Uh, we had very little traction, and uh, Pastor Tim's enthusiasm about Israel and desire to, to really you know lock arms with CUFI was just a well of encouragement. He uh, you know he was one of the first he was the first pastor from Arizona to sign on to a trip that we had going to Israel uh, on January twelfth. And uh, one thing led to another, and before you know it, we had seven, no, we had eight pastors that signed up from Arizona uh, that went to Israel with us, most of them from Tucson, a couple from Phoenix, and of course, Pastor Tim uh, up here in the north. And I am delighted to tell you now that we've turned a corner and broken new ground in Arizona. In Arizona, we've got new city directors in Tucson. We just had a fabulous event in Tucson. Uh, we've got another one coming up in next month. We've got a fabulous event coming up in Phoenix, so Arizona, are going to feel some rumbling when it comes to do with Arizona and churches that are going to be mobilizing for Israel. One of the things that we're going to do is invite you, you know, the the offering that Pastor Philman referred to, it's not going to cover the rental car that we use to drive up here. As it was the case when I was here prior, uh, will be the case again uh, tonight. Every single penny that we raise from the offering tonight will be sewn right back into Flagstaff, to to generate scholarships for college students to go to our Washington, D.C. summit this July. And, uh, you know, we, the only key, the catalyst to that is we need, to, we need you to help us identify those young men and women that deserve to be nominated uh, and to be sewn into, to be invested into. If you know a young man or woman that's responsible, mature, reliable, uh, beyond their age, uh, we, need, we need you to bring it to Pastor Tim or Jules' attention so that we can nominate them. I met Pastor Philemon's daughter, and it uh, didn't take but, like, two minutes. I mean, you talk about somebody that's re- reliable and mature beyond their age. I, I shook her hand for three minutes, and I told her, that, you know, I've got a word for you. Jesus loves you, and I have an excellent plan for your life. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and that was bringing her to Washington, D.C., and, and Lord willing, we're going to make sure that, the, that those dots get connected and that, sh- and that she's trained up to where she, when she's on college campus, she knows how to uh, very eloquently articulate a pro-Israel advocacy position. Uh, because I don't know how much you're aware, of, but the, the climate uh, and the anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric is alive and well and skyrocketing out of control on our college campuses. And that, that goes for Flagstaff as well, by the way. As long as you thinly veil your anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism, it's not just tolerable, it's politically chic, it's actually fashionable. And uh, we won't camp there, but, but that's, that's where the offering will go. So uh, just for the half of you that are unfamiliar with CUFI, I'm going to just give you a brief overview. overview. I'm going to kind of touch on the trip to Israel then we're going to bring Elliot Shadoff, uh, Major Elliot Shadoff, up. He's going to give you a briefing for probably about 30 or 35 minutes, and then we're going to shift gears. Uh, we'll receive the offering, collect the, you know, cards, and then we're going to shift gears into a time of Q&A. So be thinking, what's what are you watching in the news? What are you what are you thinking about ISIS? What are you thinking about Jordan just, you know, ex- doing some executions and retaliation for that horrific, barbaric act uh, that was carried out against the pilot. Uh, that ISIS carried, or that ISIS captured. So there's a lot of questions, and uh, that the answers are not be, being given to us on the mainstream news or media. And Elliot, uh, Elliot will be bringing you right to the source without any sugar coating, or uh, or any fluff. So uh, uh, just before we tee up the video, I'll just uh, as I shared last time I was here. Very simply, the CUFI was founded in 2006 by Pastor John Hagee of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas. It was about three decades in the making. He had gone to Israel in 1978, and as he tells the story, he went as a tourist, and he came back as a Zionist. Uh, it was put on his heart when he was at the Western Wall to do something tangible for the Jewish people in the state of Israel as a Christian leader. He had no idea what that was until Israel did a preemptive strike on, on uh, Iraq's nuclear reactor. And the media that we you know turn to for our news today uh, as was the case then, diced Israel up like an onion with their criticism, calling it gunboat diplomacy. And Pastor Hagee saw, you know, he looked down the road a couple of moves, and he realized it's probably not a bad idea to keep nuclear weapons out of the hands of a maniacal dictator, and that Israel actually did the world a favor. And so, to send that message locally, and hopefully would reverberate all the way to Israel, he rented the convention center in San Antonio. Invited the Jewish community and the Christian communities to come out as a gesture of solidarity, and uh, as soon as the press release, you know, hit the stands, the phone at the church rang. Voice at the other end said, "Hagee will be dead by Friday," and uh, that—that's—that was the only button of manipulation that they needed to push with him to turn what was going to be a one-time standalone event into an annual event that uh, that has since grown into being a national organization. He doesn't manipulate well, and, uh, and when they when they did that to him, he said, you know what, if that's how these redneck anti-Semites feel about it, we'll do it every year until they get used to it. And he made it an annual event, and it's, it's grown, and the Lord has touched it, he's breathed on it, and we are just doing the best to run to keep up with what he's doing and to stay out of his way, because the moment we think it's us is the beginning of the end, and he'll hand it to somebody else. But, uh, he, you know, he has taken us from that February 6, 2006 of 412 members, uh, today we're at two million thirty-nine thousand members, of the largest pro-Israel organization in the country. And this July, we'll be going to July for the tenth annual DC summit. And I will not—I will do my best. I will not even come close. I don't want anything that's going to smack that I would be trying to shame or guilt trip you or manipulate you into going to into DC this July. But I'll bring my toes up to the line and I'll lean my body over. Because it's that important. So uh, by the end of the evening, we're going to invite you and challenge you to try to look at if your schedule and your financial resources allow you to be one of many thousand Christians to join us in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, where we bring a resounding, morally clear message to our elected officials. We are Christians. We vote our, our elected officials in and out of office. Israel is a very important issue to us. And we want to know where you stand, where you're going to stand. And uh, we need to bring that message. We cannot leave it for other people to do. So if I could get Bob to just run that short overview video, then we're going to go on with the evening.
1: be silent we are the worst
2: nightmare of the anti-Semites of the world the victory is going to be ours
0: thank you thank you for standing up for Israel Thank you for standing up for the truth. Thank you for standing up for the one and only Jewish state. And may God bless you all. May God bless the United States of America. Thank you all.
2: We are Christians United for Israel. United for Israel began in February 2006 with 400 evangelical leaders in San Antonio. Today we are the largest pro Israel organization in America with over 1.25 million members who are ready to respond to the needs of Israel. (laughs) That's
0: uncanny. It's got to be God. That's how I see it. The only way that you can pull that many people together in so short a period of time, uh, and you're talking about Christians from all across different denominations, is that they find a common denominator outside of Jesus, and that is God's people, Israel.
1: When asked whether or not they're pro-Israel, 66% of Americans say they are. But when asked their position on the conflict, only 32% of college students say they're pro-Israel.
2: But I have a request, a plea to you. I urge you,
1: redouble your effort on the campus. It's a very hostile place. We like to say that our college students are on the front lines of the battlefield. And that's because there's various
0: opposition on college campuses. You have got opposition from student groups. You got oppositions from faculty and staff, um, opposition from biased professors in the classroom. So there's enormous amounts of uh, opposition that students are up against when they're trying to do their pro Israel activism on college campuses
1: across the nation. People don't see the Israel issue from the light that a college student does. And I know this because I was when I was in Middle Eastern Studies on my campus and I was getting involved with Kufai as a student, my experience with the Israel issue is far different than people in my church people in my family people in the community you're not going to go to your grocery
0: store and people are chanting Israel's apartheid state and the dairy aisle you know but you're going to find that pretty much anywhere you go on a college campus any major university has seen some level of anti-Israel sentiment whether it's institutionalized or
1: into the education system or its clubs and other groups supported by faculty and staff on campus. I come to kufai summits and events such as SALT to be
0: better equipped with the truth and the facts.
1: Abraham Lincoln said the philosophy of the classroom today will be the philosophy of the government tomorrow summit allows us to equip ourselves with that education, with that knowledge, with that training, to go out there and really make a difference for Israel advocacy, for Israel and to support the people of Israel.
3: There are no greater supporters of the state of Israel than Christians United for Israel, the people at this conference, particularly the people here at dinner tonight. As a Jewish woman serving in the United States House of Representatives, I thank you for your extraordinary support. I do not support Israel because I am a Jew. I support Israel because I am an American, and it is in America's best interest to support its most reliable ally in the planet. And the only democracy in the Middle East, and that, my friends, is the state of Israel.
1: As the Jew stands in prayer, he says, Where is my help going to come from? I'm surrounded. I'm aligned.
2: God has answered our prayers.
1: God has sent Kufi to the Jewish people.
2: So again, just uh, as you throughout the evening, if you do uh, feel led to give a gift, make your check payable to CFI, and, and I'll just reiterate, every penny it's going to go right back to Flagstaff. If you're, if, how many of you this is not your home church, but you go to a church here in Flagstaff? So uh, about a quarter are unfamiliar faces. Thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate it very much. Uh, Bob, if uh, you know, if you could put up the, just that first picture, that would be great. And I can't see it back here. Okay. So uh, it's, that was our group. We actually uh, had to expand our group by six people. We had so many people to go. Remember, this is right in the wake of Operation Protective Edge, uh, the summer war, and uh, pastors were you know, asking to be added to a, a, a waiting list to go, and it was, it was everyone that has ever been on a trip before. Everyone said the same thing. It was the best trip that they had ever been on to, uh, to Israel. Next slide. Yeah, one of the things that we did was meet with the soldiers. I, I don't know what sports team he brought. Mem- Pastor Tim brought memorabilia for, from, but we met with the soldiers right up by the the uh, uh, the Golan Heights and uh, at a, near a kibbutz, and really had a chance to interact with them. Uh, one of the things that we did at the kibbutz was we went to the kindergarten part of the kibbutz. Is a kibbutz is a community where, you know, a number of uh, just well, Different trades whether it the agriculture, they, they, they have different trades. Sometimes some of the people that live on the community work outside the kibbutz. But they usually have a school and daycare center. This is the bomb shelter in the kindergarten. If the kids are out playing, a siren goes off if, if a rocket's coming in. And those kids know that they have 12 to 15 seconds to get off the slide, get off the swing, and go down into the bomb shelter. Wrap your brain around that, that you're going to let your kids go outside and play, knowing that they know the drill so well. And that's a spent Katusha rocket that Pastor Tim is holding right there. That's Fat- that's Father Gabriel Nadav. He is a Palestinian Christian. He's an Orthodox priest, and he right now has a bounty on his head for three hundred thousand dollars because he had the courage to take a look around at the Middle East and point out to you know to the people that would pay attention and listen to him. That the only place in the region that Christians are safe, that they can practice their faith, that where the community is growing and thriving, is the Jewish state of Israel. And he said that it's so important to sow back into the state that's protecting them and giving them those rights that he wanted to start a campaign to encourage Christian Arabs to start enlisting in the, in the Israeli Defense Forces to start doing their share to defend the nation that is providing them with these freedoms. And since he's done that, he's brought the annual enlistment of Arab Christians into the IDF from 50 to 100 a year to now it's up to, I think, about 400 a year. And, uh, and and as a result, he's made a long list of enemies, and he's got a death warrant on his head. When we went to meet with him, we had no idea where where his office was going to be because it moves around like a shell game, uh, like a roving gypsy just to protect, just to, to you know, to protect his life. He can't put his shingle out. He can't put his sign out. Uh, he's always living in the shadows. Next slide. This is, this is Pastor Stephen Corey, very similar story. He's a, a, a Christian pastor in Bethlehem. He's been beaten by lengths of pipe and kicked in the ribs when he was on the ground because he, like his father before him and his family that are all evangelical Christians, They read the Bible, and they see what it says from the first book to the last, that God has a love and a plan and a purpose for Israel and the Jewish people, and he doesn't wipe that stuff out. He believes it, and he stands with Israel, and as a result, he has made a lot of enemies. Uh, It's curious to me that in all of the region around Israel, with all of the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, that people like him, you know, that he's not in Israel. He's over in Judea and Samaria, a.k.a. the West Bank. Uh, he's not in you know in israel proper and and his life is he's got to look he's got to look over his shoulder uh, It's curious though that the same that the people in the same zip code they call themselves Christians that su- pledge allegiance to the Palestinian authority condemn Israel and support you know uh, resistance against israel they don't suffer any persecution whatsoever it's just the Christians that believe their bible and love Israel. This is uh, Khalid Abu And he is a a Palestinian journalist working for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, He used to be a reporter for NBC. For for 26 years, he was a reporter and consultant on the Middle East and Israel for NBC. And he decided to tell the story that uh, Hamas really, you know, that, that Israel was using, you know, their missiles to protect their citizens and Hamas was using their citizens to protect their missiles. He he actually was bringing the story to NBC that Hamas was creating scenarios to create human casualties to make it news, and he was told that's not the story, and he no longer works for NBC because he wasn't tailor-making the story the way that they wanted it to be. This is a little bone-chilling, actually. Uh, Pastor Tim and I and a couple of others, we opted out of the tour of the tunnels underneath the Western Wall, and that put us in an Arab area, uh, in you know, just across from the west from the Western Wall, and we sat down to have some Turkish coffee. Uh, have you ever had Turkish coffee? Unlike Folgers, uh, Turkish coffee is good to the second to the last drop. By the way, uh, it's a little gritty there at the bottom. But we were sitting uh, sitting there out on the sidewalk and, and enjoying some sunshine, and these kids came up. And they're they're marching pretty much in unison with their with a gal behind them. And I stepped up and asked if I could take their picture, and uh, they smiled and posed a different photo. Pastor Tim got one too. And when they were done, they said we're. They proudly beamed and shouted, "We are Hamas." These kids couldn't be eight years old, and they've already had it indoctrinated into their identity. Next. And this was just not very far from the Golan Heights. When we met with, Pat, with Major Elliot Shotoff. he was going to bring us right up to the Syrian border on the Golan Heights. And, uh, and un, as unusual as it was, we were bogged in with snow. The higher up we went, the more snow we ran into, and the road that we were going to take that would bring us to uh, the point that he had in mind, the snow was so deep we were afraid that the bus would get stuck. And so he b- turned us around, brought us down to this site where he could give us our briefing Curiously, three days after we were doing the turnaround on that bus at that point, you could throw a stone virtually to an area where you might have heard that on January 18th, on Sunday, January 18th, um, Israel isn't confirming that they were responsible for it, but a number of, of uh, Hezbollah and Iranian uh, military officials uh, ex- you know, received martyrdom that day. And they were taken off the face of the earth just a stone's throw from where we were going to be, and I'll let Elliot elaborate on that. But that's where Pastor Tim met Major Elliot Shotoff. Major Elliot Shotoff now teaches. He's a, he is a reserve. He does I, I think I'm not sure a hundred days a year on active duty. Uh, was, you know if he's if if there's a call up he goes whether his name is called up or not. He's just uh, at the front of the line. He is a professor of of counterterrorism analysis at the University of Haifa. And he does lectures on the highest levels of security and ho- and homeland protection, whether it be our FBI agents, whether it be our CIA agents, whether it be homeland security elites. Uh, invariably, they have been briefed either here or abroad in Israel uh, by Elliot Shotoff. He is uh, he really is one of Israel's premier experts on counterterrorism. So. Uh, it's a little bit off the beaten path to bring him to Flagstaff, Arizona, but here he is, and I would really appreciate it if you would just give a great, big, warm Flagstaff welcome to Major Elliot shotoff. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Make me earn it. I'm going to be teaching you a few strategic lessons. Let me start with a very important one. You may notice that I'm limping. Very important lesson, make sure somebody braces the ladder. More important than all the other strategic ones. Um, Given that covering the entire Middle East in a single lecture is impossible, can't be done in a course, it can't even be done in a full degree, what I'm going to be doing is hitting a few of what I consider to be key points uh, in teaching you. And then afterwards I'll give you a chance to to ask questions and redirect and be happy to tell you if I know the answer. If not, I'll make something up that's credible and we'll go on from there. Um, I want to start just briefly with a look at this map. It's a map of North Africa, the Middle East, and a bit of Southern Europe. Can you see Israel? Look again. Harder. Mediterranean. Far East, all the way to the right. You see where it says Israel in the Mediterranean? That's where our enemies want us, by the way. Um, But the reason the name is in the Mediterranean is because Israel on the map is too small for the name to go into its territory. Hold that thought uh, because, you know, Israel is referred to as expansionist. We're not very good at it. Some things we're excellent at. That's not one of them. Uh, but I want you to just sort of get a sense of the map, leaving Southern Europe out for a bit, although they've got their problems as well, and get a sense that virtually everything else on this map, with the exception of Israel, is a storm of violence, turbulence, chaos, and death all around us for, in some directions, over a 1,000 miles Talking about areas like uh, Central Africa, Africa, where an organization called Boko Haram killed some 10,000 people last year that they know of. By the way, all estimates of deaths in these kind of conflicts are low, by definition, because they will only add into the estimates those they can confirm, in other words, where they can find bodies and count them. And of course, in many of these places, finding the bodies is not so simple. So, we're talking about the, the low-end estimates: 10,000 uh, by Boko Haram, Syria, and Iraq. ISIS killed another 10,000 or so last year, and unfortunately, starting off this year with a bang. Uh, additional tens of thousands in Syria, unconnected to the ISIS phenomenon. Another 12 to 15,000 in Iraq, unconnected to the ISIS phenomenon. I think you're getting the picture, and that's before we get out to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen. Libya and such places, Lebanon. So that's kind of the picture. And as you can see by the map, uh, you may not get a, get a sense because it's a regional map, Israel is a really tiny country. I would say that Israel is living proof that God has a sense of humor. Okay, we're about 250 miles north to south, about 50 miles at our widest point east-west. In other words, there's no place in Israel where you can be 30 miles from the border. We, Randy says, you know, I brought them up to the border. Everything's border. <laughs> we just went up close enough where you can try to get where you can actually touch it. Uh, and, and they're not happy borders. So really small country, rich in resources like limestone rock. Uh, that's our largest natural resource. All the oil in the region miraculously stops when it reaches our borders. Largest above ground water reservoir is the Dead Sea. And we're a desert most of the year. Um, that's the promised land. So, and I would live nowhere else. But understand, it's not exactly about the physical. Okay, so that that's kind of our picture. What I would like to do from here is talk a bit about who's out there, and who we're dealing with. And when I say we, I mean all of us. We're just in a little bit closer than you. But in today's world, that doesn't mean that much. I want to talk a little bit about what happened this past summer in our fighting with Hamas. Uh, A little bit about what's going on today and a bit of a projection into what's going to the future. And here I have to tell you, I don't do prophecy. I'm a devout follower of two great political philosophers, Winston Churchill and Yogi Berra, uh, who both said it's always best to prophesy about things that have already happened. It's much safer. When you're dealing with the Middle East, that's triply true because we haven't heard the news in, I don't know, a couple of hours at least, which means that part of what I may be saying tonight is wrong because who knows, it's, it happens that fast. And we are literally in the midst of things, and maybe I'll touch a bit on ISIS and Jordan and that sort of thing, literally in the midst of things on a moment to moment, day to day basis. So, in order to help understand what's going on out there, um, it's important for us to know that with all of the groups and with groups I'm talking about some of the some of the countries as well with all of the conflict the conflict that's going on between them, virtually all of the issues going on around us draw their ideology from one source from one organization essentially from one writer and it may seem a bit strange because they're killing each other merrily oh, there's a map of Israel you can get a sense of who and where and what. Um, And that source is an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. And their ideologue, a man named Saeed Qutb. I'm not going to go into a long dissertation on the brotherhood or on Qutb. Interesting stories, uh, interesting subjects. But what I want to do is give you a sense of focus. The motto of the brotherhood, and this goes back to its origins in 1928 and remains its motto to this day, goes as follows. The brotherhood says that Allah is our objective. The Quran is our constitution. The Prophet, meaning Muhammad, is our leader. Jihad, meaning holy war, not some internal struggle to make me a better person. Holy war, jihad is our way. And the last item on their motto is the one that we find most difficult to really understand. They say that death for the sake of Allah is our highest aspiration. I want to spend a moment on that. Because in not understanding that, we don't understand a lot that's going on out there. They don't say death, for Allah's sake, is something we're willing to do as a sacrifice. Let's face it, we understand sacrifice. No, it is our highest aspiration. It's what we want. When organizations like Al-Qaeda and Hamas and Hezbollah say, we love death more than you love life, we don't get it. We don't get it. Now, there's a good reason we don't get it. We follow a value, an ethic, as written in Deuteronomy, where it says, choose life. Choose life. So when they say death is our highest aspiration, we love death more than you love life, we don't understand what they're talking about. Now, between us, I say, let's give them what they want. I I like to be very friendly and cooperative and that sort of thing. Um... We should recognize, we should accept that they mean it, even if we don't fully comprehend it. Now the organizations that come out of that ideology, the countries and organizations, I'm going to give you a very, very quick list. Iran, Khomeini was a follower of the ideology of the Brotherhood. Their proxy, Hezbollah, I'll say a bit more about them in a bit. Hamas, is the Muslim Brotherhood branch of the Palestinians. Al-Qaeda and its spinoffs. Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS, the Islamic State, who Al-Qaeda says is crazy. How's that for something to put on your resume? We're really nuts. Even Al-Qaeda says so. Now you might think, well, these people are fighting each other. What are they fighting about? And the answer is, they're fighting about tactics. They all believe the same thing, that the world should be controlled by what they call a universal Khalifat, a universal Muslim control of the world. And their battle is over how it should happen, how fast it should happen, and who should be in control when it's over. In other words, it's about tactics and politics, not about ideology. And that's something, incidentally, that the American press completely drops the ball on, among other things, in this discussion. Okay, so that's who we're facing. A few words about what happened this summer... Um we had a, a bit of a war with Hamas. Now I don't know how much you know about Hamas. A lot of people don't like Hamas. I like them. I like honest murderers, because it makes my job as a strategic analyst much easier. Now, if you know anything about strategic analysis, uh, we basically assess two things, two categories. One is called capabilities, the other is called intentions. And Usually it's much easier to assess, assess capabilities than intentions, right? A count of how many tanks do they have, how many planes, how many guns, how well trained, how well organized. That's their capability. What do they mean to do with it? That's kind of hard to guess sometimes. Hamas makes my life easy. By the way, so does Iran, so does Hezbollah. Just listen to them. Or read what they write. The opening line of the Hamas charter, which by the way, by the way they call the Charter of Allah, rather bombastic. The opening line is, Israel will exist until Islam obliterates it. Any questions? Need help figuring this out? I know their intentions. They're telling it to me. So when they arm, I know exactly what they're arming for. When Iran says we want to wipe Israel off the map, that's what they mean. By the way, in November shortly before you celebrate Thanksgiving, Iran celebrates its annual Death to America Day. Do you need help figuring this out? Because I I can elaborate if you want. What do you think they mean by Death to America Day? What you think is what they mean. Just what it sounds like. We fought a short, couple-of-month-long war with Hamas this summer, and here I have to tell you it was something of a sideshow. Not that there were no tragedies, and there were, and people were killed on both sides. In some cases, uh, people we meant to kill, and in some cases, tragically, people we didn't mean to kill. Wars like that, and I don't say that offhandedly, I say it realistically. But it's something of a sideshow in the sense that, as you'll see in a bit, what's going on in other places is far more important, far more threatening to us. And here, just let me give you a sense of that. Somebody asked me recently, is Israel concerned about ISIS? And my answer was, they can take a number. We have far more important things to worry about today. What will be next year will be next year. The fighting started with three teenagers being kidnapped. And in the course of our attempt to find who they were, we rounded up a bunch of Hamas activists and leaders and interrogated them. In the end, the teenagers had been killed. We didn't know that initially. We found their bodies after a few weeks. And while we were rounding up their leaders, primarily in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank, Hamas started firing rockets out of Gaza. You can see Gaza, the Gaza Strip down there on the lower left of, of Israel. And we responded pretty much tit for tat. When the bodies were found, we thought it was going to be over. After all, it was up. And Prime Minister Netanyahu actually made a statement, a public statement, that quiet will be met with quiet. In other words, you stop shooting, we'll stop shooting. And they escalated. And the Egyptians tried to organize a ceasefire. They actually got a ceasefire going for a little bit. Uh, Any ceasefire with a terrorist organization is what I call a shared ceasefire. We cease, they fire. And, by the way, I have to tell you, I don't joke about this because it's a laughing matter. I joke about it because laughing at them kills them. It drives them mad. They want us to be worried concerned. Oh, my God. We are concerned. But that's only we can't laugh at them at the same time. They were firing rockets. We were firing rockets. We were striking back. Ceasefires broke down. By the way, the media reported those breakdowns. Typically, I'm talking about the American media in the following fashion. This was pretty classic. Ceasefire breaks down as Israel airstrikes hit Gaza. And then the next line below it in the small print, following 12 hours of Palestinian rocket fire. Okay, you get this? When they fire rockets, it's not a violation. It's within the framework of the ceasefire. When we retaliate after 12 hours, that's it. The ceasefire is over. Still, we managed to hold everything together. We didn't want a war. Nobody wants war. Not on our side anyway. We mobilized reserves. We moved them to the border, but we didn't go in. It was there to threaten them, to give them a sense that we will if we have to, and we still managed to hold it. There was a good reason for it, a number of reasons, and I'll just cover them very briefly. We essentially were able to make an intolerable situation manageable for our population. Now, it's intolerable for rockets to be falling. You saw the picture of the rocket in the bomb shelter. It's intolerable for kids to have to run into bomb shelters. But manageable in the sense that we can keep people relatively secure because we take this very, very seriously. We have a system called the Iron Dome. A lot of American money went went into that, a lot of Israeli technology went into it that can intercept the rockets, although it's not going to be terribly effective in the future. I'll tell you why in a bit. We have a civil defense system, an alarm and alert system that actually gives people the time necessary, whether it's 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 seconds, you'd be amazed how much you can do in 30 seconds if you don't hurry okay and utterly miraculously the Israeli population actually followed instructions anybody who knows anything about Israel knows that, that was a miracle because uh, we have a country with seven million prime ministers <laughs> nobody's gonna tell me what to do um, but people actually followed instructions and again n- there were tragedies and people were killed and I say that very seriously uh, However, given the fact that there was a war war going on, it was kept within, in that context, manageable proportions. The game changer was the use of the tunnels by Hamas. They had dug tunnels under our borders. We knew about it, by the way. When the media said that Israel was surprised by the tunnels, the media, once again, I know you'll be shocked, had no idea what they were talking about. Um, We were aware of the tunnels. We'd been dealing with them for over a decade they, we knew that they were going to use them, but once they actually started using them on the scale that they did, we said, okay, enough is enough. Uh, you may have seen the clip. If not, it's out there on, on the web. You can find it. Uh, taken through an Israeli border camera in Gaza. Uh, one fine night, very, very late, early in the morning, about 3, 3.30 in the morning, terrorists started coming up out of the ground. And the female soldier who was on the screen, and by the way, you should know that the eyes and ears of Israel are female. The soldiers who sit on those screens, whether they're radar screens or camera screens or listening devices or whatever, are typically almost invariably women. They do an amazing job. They also do something, anybody here with military experience will appreciate this. Uh, They do an amazing job of directing the forces, and you have to be there to appreciate, on an open radio net, some 19-year-old corporal calling a lieutenant colonel battalion commander on the net and saying, listen, I've got an alert at this spot. You better get over there right now. And he says the equivalent, yes, ma'am, I'm on my way. (laughs) Um, She did did a great job, and forces moved in. The Air Force fired a, a missile at them, killed a bunch of them. Most of them escaped, but we put an end to that attack. Now, here I have to tell you, again, with all due respect to that woman soldier, and she did a great job, In this particular case, her job was made a little bit easier by the fact that military intelligence, the evening before, told her, move the camera to this spot and don't move it. In other words, we knew it was coming. And she just had to sit there and watch the screen, which, by the way, we don't take for granted. And then she did her job. When we investigated the tunnel, we found evidence of some 40 terrorists having been in there ready to come out. And they were going to go into a small village, a place called Kibbutz Sufa. Forty terrorists in a small village is not a terrorist attack. What happened in Paris recently were terrorist attacks. Forty terrorists in a small village is a massacre. In other words, their objective was to kill every last man, woman, and child in that town. And with all due respect to intelligence, and we have very good intelligence, and I'm not an intelligence officer. I have subordinates who claim that I'm not an intelligent officer but we'll leave that for a moment. Um, I'm a consumer of intelligence, and we have a very good intelligence service. If they're right, 60 70% of the time, they're doing a great job. That's not good enough for this kind of a situation. In other words, you can't be surprised with that. And there is no iron dome to protect against the tunnels. So we went in to find the tunnels. Now, you can only find them at their entry point, not on their exit point. And there's a very simple reason for that. Anybody who's here has ever seen the movie The Great Escape? Okay, remember they dig down, they dig across, and they dig a little bit up. But when do they actually break the surface? When they're ready to use it. Okay, so you can be walking over the exit point and not know that it's there. You have to find the entry point. So we went into Gaza. We didn't invade. We crossed the border into two towns in a neighborhood, Bet Hanun, Bet Lahia, and Saigia, where the tunnels were actually being dug, and found the entrances. You can pick whatever number was reported. You know that... They're not 100% accurate. We don't tell everybody everything. We keep a few secrets. But let's say 40 tunnels, 45 tunnels, whatever it was. And we blew them up. Nobody in the business that I know thinks that we got every last tunnel. And in any event, it doesn't matter. As we speak now, they are digging new ones. They dig them with children, by the way. Those children die in droves in the digging. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. Ultimately, we pulled out, and they still kept firing rockets. We shifted gears once again, and we started going after their leadership. And we killed a bunch of their leaders. And the world, of course, calls that targeted assassination, and as Randy alluded to it before I came up here, I like to think of it as assisted martyrdom. So much friendlier that way. Uh, And that got their attention, and they stopped shooting. Now, here you need to understand, even an organization like Hamas, a suicide organization, can be negotiated with if you use the right terms. Now, I'm an honor graduate of the Don Vito Corleone School of Negotiating. Uh, And basically, you can threaten them. Now, you might think to yourself, how do you threaten leaders of a suicide organization? And the answer is very simple. Think about this for a moment. You don't rise up through the ranks to leadership in a suicide organization. Right? Right? Right, you don't start at the bottom, successfully commit suicide a few times, and get promoted. It doesn't work that way. Right, there's, there's a line. There are those who get sent to Allah, and there are those who send them to Allah. All right? Please note, Os- Osama bin Laden was not flying an airplane on 9-11. Okay? There was no bin Laden's last stand in Tora Bora. He had to be tracked down in his hideout in Pakistan with his bodyguards, his wives, and his pornography. Leading from the front, right? Not exactly. So these guys were threatened, they stopped, and we have a ceasefire that's been holding so far. Now all that means, that people talk about the cycle of violence, there's no cycle of violence, it's waves of violence. And what we've done now is driven the wave down, and eventually it's going to come up again. When is it going to come up? Nobody knows. Today, the Egyptians are working with us The Egyptian government has also figured it out, so maybe we'll be able to keep the lower trough of the wave a little bit longer. Nonetheless, it's only a matter of time. In this case, maybe a little little bit longer. And again, we have more important fish to fry in the north. Before I move to what's happening in the north and around us, uh, a few words about what happened there, because here again, uh, the press got it 100% wrong. During the fighting, as is typical with us, Israel did everything it possibly could to protect civ- civilians on both sides, while Hamas, and it, as any terrorist organization, did everything it, p- it could possibly do to endanger civilians on both sides. Now, here you need to understand. Now even I an organization give you a little little bit like of Hamas, into the a Israeli suicide organization, organization a mentality can be negotiated. Long with if you use the right term. Itself. Now, I'm an honor graduate of the Don Vito Corleone Israel School has the only army in the world, uh, which has a basically unit you threaten of soldiers who are fluent in, of in the enemies' language. And the answer is the very simple. Sole purpose Think about this for a moment. Is to call enemy you civilians on their You don't rise up through the ranks to leadership in a suicide organization and tell them to right? get out of their neighborhood. Right? Because you don't, don't start it's going at the bottom, successfully commit suicide a few times, and get promoted. Okay. Hi, Go this is that. the IDF. We're going to be right? hitting the, your neighborhood tomorrow morning at ten. Better you shouldn't be home. There are those who get sent to Allah, and there are those who send. And then them follows to Allah. it up with SMSs. Right? Now. That sounds Please really note. cute. Well, it Osama it's bin really Laden good, not and it Is not flying about this from in 9/11? How much intelligence effort? Okay. There was no Bin Laden's effort, last stand. Organization, organization in effort. effort, communications effort. He had to be tracked down in his position. hideout in Pakistan with his bodyguards. Finding his out where people live, what their cell phone numbers are, and how to communicate with them, for an army that's at war, and I'm talking about enemy civilians. That should give you a sense of who the IDF is and what we do. Hamas uses human shields. They also use human sacrifice. In other words, sometimes they get their people killed because they want to get them killed. Because it plays well on CNN. And remember, death for the sake of Allah is our highest aspiration. It's not a sacrifice. It's a good thing. But as human, sa- as human shields, they'll put civilians on top of a building that's packed with weapons that they know that we're going to strike. And now we've got a bunch of people on the rooftop. We have a moral dilemma. We have a legitimate target that we need to take out and a bunch of civilians up there. And here I'll preempt one question. I think, I maybe, maybe not. People often ask me, why don't we do to them what they would do to us? And the answer is because we are not them and we should never be them. And if we become like them, they win. And if we're going to be like them, we don't need to fight. Let's just join them and be done with it. We have to fight on our terms by our values. We created a piece of equipment that we call the roof knocker. A missile with no warhead. In other words, it doesn't explode. A bunch of people up on the roof. We fire this essentially unarmed missile at the roof. It hits the roof. They get scared, they scatter, and then we hit the target. The UN calls that a war crime. That's why I call the UN useless nudniks. They should find something else to do with their time. That's background. In the few moments I have left, I want to talk a little bit about about what's happening around the north. I serve in northern command. We're responsible for the Lebanese and Syrian borders that area up up there. Um, And with that, just a few things. Our immediate... Up-close issue these days is an organization called Hezbollah. And a grander issue that's connected to Hezbollah is the issue of Iran. And I want to talk about those two together uh, very briefly. First of all, you should know Hezbollah, as I mentioned before, is a proxy of Iran. Hezbollah is the most dangerous terrorist organization in the world. They make Al-Qaeda look like the gang gang that couldn't shoot straight. They brought suicide terrorism to the world, not Al-Qaeda. And significantly as Iranian proxies, of their first three major targets of suicide attacks, two were American. The American embassy in Beirut and the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut, killing 241 American Marines. America and Iran, via Hezbollah, but in other ways as well, have been at war since 1979-1980. One side doesn't recognize that it's at war and it's not Iran. But listen, if blowing up an embassy and blowing up a marine base and killing 241 marines are not acts of war, can somebody in this room please tell me what is an act of war? Hezbollah is well-trained, well-armed, well-organized, motivated, and they're fighting now in the Syrian war. They've been doing it for a number of years, heavily engaged. The good news is a bunch of them have gotten killed. The bad news is the organization is gaining a lot of combat experience. I mention all of that because of the following. In 2006, we fought a war with Hezbollah. They fired about 4,000 rockets into Israel over five weeks. They started that war with 20,000 rockets. This past summer with Hamas, they also started with about 20,000, and they fired just under, under 4,000 in the course of the war over the summer. Hezbollah today has over 200,000 rockets in their arsenal that we know of. My personal estimate is higher. They have a range that can reach into the south of Israel, where it says Israel on the map, but that's as far as their long-range rockets can reach from Lebanon. In other words, virtually the entire country is within range of their rockets. They are larger, more accurate, nastier than anything we've seen before, and they have a launch capability, and this is most critical, much greater than anything we've seen before. In other words, this past summer, when Hamas fired rockets, they'd fire six at a time or eight at a time. Hezbollah has the ability to fire dozens upon dozens upon dozens. I can't tell you the exact number. But dozens upon dozens at a time at a single target. In other words, the Iron Dome will not work because too many rockets will be fired at once. In sports, it's called flooding the zone. They will be able to fire in about 48 hours what took them five weeks in 2006. What that means from our perspective in Israel is that we will not be able to fight the leisurely type of war that we fought in the past. This is not a sideshow. This already becomes a serious security threat. It means that everything that we've done up until now, even with the best of our intentions of wanting to continue to do it, things that I mentioned about what we did in Gaza and other things that I, w- I didn't have time to talk about, we will not be able to do in the next round with Hezbollah because we're going to have to end it very, very, very quickly. And these people are very good fighters. And This isn't about winning or losing. It's about how fast, how violent, and how difficult it's going to be from our side. And I'll tell you now, it's not going to look good on the news because it's not going to be good. And we're seeing the beginnings of that already as they try to move the front around, not only from Lebanon, but into Syria as well, where it says on the map, ceasefire line, where where the L of ceasefire line of the word line, that's where we killed the Iranian general and a bunch of Hezbollah leaders this past month. That's Hezbollah, but the real issue, the grand issue is Iran. And here again, just a few words, and then I'll conclude. And see if you have a personal message for you. As I said, Iran, openly, is all of ours' enemy. Khomeini, when he came to power, stated very clearly, America is the great Satan, Israel is the little Satan. He was not speaking in geographical terms. He was speaking in theological terms. America is the great evil. We have the bad luck of being a little bit closer, so we're in the neighborhood. But today that doesn't matter very much. Iran is trying to get the ability to produce nuclear weapons. It's on the verge of getting that. And I emphasize the verge of production. They don't want nuclear weapons. They want to be able to produce nuclear weapons. That's an important distinction. Because when people say, well, maybe they just want them to be able to defend themselves. If that were the the case, they could buy a couple from the Russians or the North Koreans. But two weapons will help you defend yourself. After all, nobody wants to mess with the nuclear power. But you can't use two nuclear weapons for offensive capability, because you know what? Unless you're in a non-nuclear world like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when the two weapons that you use are the two last ones on Earth at the time, you can't fire your last nuclear weapons at an enemy and leave yourself completely unarmed. If you want an offensive capability, you need a bunch of nuclear weapons. So you can fire some and still have the ability to threaten those who are coming back after you. And that's why they want to be able to produce them. It isn't enough that they want nuclear weapons. They are producing ballistic missiles as well. And here, let me tell you, Israel has long been in the range of Iranian ballistic missiles Europe is in the range of Iranian ballistic missiles, and there's a great debate among the intelligence people today whether the last one on their chain is operational or not, but that is an ICBM that can reach the east coast of the United States of America. So let me help you connect those dots. Death to America Day, the Great Satan, nuclear weapons, and ballistic missiles that can reach the United States. You with me? If you're thinking to yourselves They wouldn't dare attack America. I can refer you to a rather large body of literature from the late 1930s and the early 1940s right up to the end of November 1941 that stated uh, very, very, very intelligent experts that the Japanese would never dare attack the United States of America. And toward the end of that period, through the summer and into the fall of 1941, they wouldn't dare attack Pearl Harbor They wouldn't dare attack our Pacific fleet. That's why we moved it from San Diego to Pearl Harbor in the first place. Oops. Never say never and never say never dare. Life is always full of surprises. That's what we're facing. And when we talk about stopping Iran from getting nuclear weapons, that's the Iran we're talking about. If Iran gets nuclear weapons, the likelihood of nuclear war goes up to near certainty. And I can give you a bunch of different scenarios, I won't do it here. So, on that happy note, and now that you have, I hope, a bit more insight in what's going on around us, and keep in mind, it's not that far away. I mean, I fly back and forth pretty often. It's about a 10 or 11 hour plane ride. Okay, it's a little cramped. But it's not that far away. I want to conclude with two two things rather briefly. One, a bit of a lesson. This in Jewish philosophy, but bear with me. And then in a mess- with a message to you. There was a, a great sh- Jewish scholar about a thousand years ago named Maimonides. He was a physician, an astronomer, a philosopher, and a scholar of Jewish law. And among his many works, he wrote a 14-volume set on Jewish law. Easy reading, nothing to it. Uh, in the introduction, he wrote something, he wrote many things that were, were profound, but he wrote something profound that I think you'll be able to relate to. He asked the question, as a philosopher, is following God's commandment healthy, as a philosopher, physician? Is following God's commandment healthy? And he answered as follows. He said, we must follow God's word because it's God's word. But it is inconceivable that God would tell us to do something that isn't good for us. And I would say to you, in light of some of the things that I've said tonight, that you may support Israel because it's God's word, and I never argue with God's word, but you should also consider that it's also because it's good for you. Because doing God's word is good for you. If you stand with Israel, you stand with Israel? Yes? So I'm telling you tonight it's time to stop standing with Israel. It's time to start marching. Standing is insufficient. Our enemies, all of our enemies are on the march. Standing is inadequate. It's time to get up and start to march. Because if we don't, they're going to be here. And whether the here is in my backyard or in your backyard, all too soon. Now there are a few ways that you can march. One is learn the subject. It's critically important. Second, having learned it, speak it. Speak it to your friends, to your neighbors, to your relatives, to your representatives. This may come as a surprise to you. America is a democracy. The power, the political power of this country sits in rooms just like this all over the country. Make no mistake about it. Randy will talk a little bit more about what that means. You have enormous influence. You have no idea how much influence you have. And last but not least, and I know Randy's going to talk a little bit more about this as well, march to Washington this summer. Join me there in July, a whole bunch of other people who are on the march. Speaking to your representatives here is effective. Speaking to them there is incredibly more effective because they know very well how, how long and difficult it is to march from Arizona to Washington, more so than from Maryland Critically, critically important. So, first of all, thank you for having me here. It's been great. Thank you for being here and for standing and hopefully marching with Israel. And God bless you.
1: From the guest of Pastor Tim Masters and Victorious Life Christian Center with this week's message on the Destined to Win podcast. Destined to Win is made possible with the prayerful and financial support of those destined to win. To donate online, visit VLCCAZ.org. That's VLCCAZ.org. Destined to Win is a production of Victorious Life Christian Centers with services Sunday mornings at 10 at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. I'm Joe Harding. From Pastor Tim Masters and the congregation at Victorious Life Christian Center, you're invited to join us here next week for another edition of the Destined to Win podcast.